Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the news section. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered. I'm your host, Dr. Chandra Balani, Chief Science Officer of the IASLC. Joining me on this episode are Dr. Jack West, Dr. Nathan Pennell, and Jill Feldman. Dr. Pennell is Professor of Medicine and Director of the Lung Cancer Medical Oncology Program at Cleveland Clinic Tossing Cancer Institute. Dr. West is an Associate Clinical Professor in Medical Oncology and a Specialist in Thoracic Oncology. He also serves as Executive Director of Employer Services at City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center. And he's an expert podcaster also. Jill Feldman is a lung cancer patient and a patient advocate and co-founder of the group EGFR Resistors, dedicated to improving outcomes for people with EGFR-positive lung cancer by accelerating research. In this episode of this podcast, we are going to look at research that came out of ASCO 2020, specifically the data from the ADARA trial. We'll begin with Jack. Jack, you heard the results of the ADARA trial and the design of the trial. Can you briefly describe the design of the ADARA trial that came out of ASCO this year? Sure, happy to. Uh, The ADARA trial is a randomized study that is looking at the utility of the third-generation EGFR inhibitor osimertinib compared to placebo in the postoperative adjuvant setting for patients with stage 1B to 3A resected non-small cell lung cancer. And so the design was to include patients who had undergone surgery and had an activating EGFR mutation, either exon 19 or an L858R mutation. Patients had to have undergone brain imaging postoperatively if it wasn't done preoperatively, but it, it wasn't required to have a brain MRI, and I don't believe that a PET-CT was required either. So staging may not be as ideal as we'd have hoped. In any event, the study then randomized patients to either get osimertinib 80 milligrams daily for up to three years or placebo over that interval. And the primary endpoint was disease-free survival by investigator assessment First, specifically focusing on patients with stage 2 to 3A disease, and then also secondarily looking at a broader inclusion of the patients with stage 1B disease. I should also mention that patients were allowed to have undergone postoperative chemotherapy before the uh, osimertinib or placebo. It wasn't required. Most patients did, but not as many as many of us would have preferred, and postoperative radiation was not allowed, including in patients with stage 3A disease. So, Jack, uh, if you look at the baseline characteristics of the trial, there are approximately 32% of the patients, or 25 to 32% of the patients, who are smokers, and EGFR patients have low incidence of smoking. Do you think this confounds the results of this trial? I don't think so. it, it should. I think one thing that we've learned really from the IPASS study on, so it's been more than a decade, that the molecular characteristics, specifically the presence of that EGFR mutation, trumps any clinical considerations. So 
the presence of an activating EGFR mutation is really what should have been required. And I agree with that rather than segregating by smoking status or excluding prior smokers. I also think that while it is consistently true that uh, never smokers are are overrepresented in in patients' uh, studies with driver mutations, especially EGFR, maybe ALK as well. well. I don't think we want to send the message that it is so tightly linked that uh, we shouldn't be testing uh, or believing results in patients who have a smoking status and who test positive. So I think, uh, especially in a randomized trial, that should be controlled and there are definitely plenty of patients who do have some smoking status. It tends to be more limited and it tends to be more remote in those with an EGFR mutation, but the mutation is what's critical. So what you're saying is that mutation trumps everything else on the clinical characteristics of the patient. Yes, exactly. I mean, that, that is something that we learned from the IPASS trial and it has continued for more than a decade. And Nate, do you see a lot of uh, smokers with EGFR mutation in your practice? I do, you know, as opposed to probably Jack's practice on the West Coast, uh, here in the industrial Midwest, you know, most of my patients are former smokers. And I would say even, I don't know, maybe half of the people that I identify with EGFR mutations or ALK gene translocations have some smoking history, although clearly... Um, we get some non-smokers as well, but it's probably not quite as representative as what you would see in, in a trial like this one. So it seemed that uh, Roy, when he presented the results of the Adara trial, he was very excited. And the hazard ratio of 0.7 in the primary endpoint was actually impressive. So Nate, could you just briefly tell us about the results of the trial? Sure. And uh, yeah, I think not not too many times in our career do we get an opportunity to present a trial so floridly positive that uh, it gets it gets uh, put into a plenary presentation with just a few weeks' notice. So the primary endpoint of the study was disease-free survival, specifically in the higher risk groups of patients with stage two and stage three A disease. It was designed to detect a difference of about with a hazard ratio of 0.7, which is what many people would consider to be the minimal clinically relevant one. But at the interim analysis, the uh, independent monitoring committee noted that the disease-free survival hazard ratio was 0.17. So that is, uh, that is not a typo. And when you look at the disease-free survival curves, there is a very impressive separation of the curves, where at two years, the disease-free survival was 90% with uh, those who received osimertinib and only 44%, even at just two years, in the control arm. So a, an absolute difference of you know 46%, so almost 50% absolute difference in recurrences of two years. So at this point, they felt that the trial had to be unblinded and then we all got to see the data very quickly, which was, which was nice. Great. So you think that uh, the benefit in stage 1B disease is lower than stage 2 and stage 3A disease? Well, I mean, it makes sense that it would be. The recurrence risk is less with 1B, although I will point out that stage 1B non-small cell lung cancer does still have probably about a 40% risk of recurrence. So clearly this is a still an at-risk population that may benefit from adjuvant treatment. However, when you average it in, of course, the hazard ratio, uh, including 1Bs, only moved from 0.17 to 0.21. 
But they did break down the hazard ratio of disease-free survival by stage. And what we can see is that in the 1Bs, the hazard ratio for disease-free survival was 0.5, which in most trials would be considered a pretty impressive improvement, but clearly less of a benefit seen in that group, although it was still significant. All right, let's move on to Jill. Jill, what do you think, especially the patient perspective on the endpoints of disease-free survival versus overall survival? Yeah, so it's been it's been very interesting for me, who somebody who's been in the lung cancer space for a long time, and historically speaking, having lost both my mom and my dad to lung cancer only months after being diagnosed, I understand why overall survival has been primary important endpoint in lung cancer, but as there's been advancements. It's a whole different lung cancer world now. And treatments like osimertinib, they're allowing patients to live longer. So when you look at it, for some, overall survival might be the only important endpoint. They might just want to live a couple more months and make it to an important moment or milestone in their family. But I think what's really, you know, kind of overlooked sometimes is that it's not the only important endpoint. It's not the only meaningful endpoint. We also value disease-free survival and quality of life. And those are important. We, you know, as patients, we really, we want hope. Hope that we can live long enough and well enough to reach and enjoy that next milestone. And so I, I feel like when you talk about it like that, I, I like to use analogies sometimes. And I, I use the football analogy when, it's, even with my team, when I talk about strategy, you know, to me, overall survival is like throwing the Hail Mary touchdown, right? If you're only looking at that, then you may get it, you may not get it. But what we really look at, we're not looking to throw the Hail Mary touchdown. We just want to get to that next first down. What we do with that next series, we don't know yet, right? But what we do know is that first downs will keep us in the game. And the longer we're in the game, the longer research has time to develop and discover new treatment options for us. So I think the most important thing to note is that it, but it depends again on the patient, what is important to them at that point in their life. Thank you, Jill. That was a great perspective. Uh, But uh, as you heard at ASCO, that Roy Herbst called the results of Adara a home run, and he gave the baseball analogy. And what do you think, Jack? Does this uh, apply? You know, I would I would say that perhaps the person who presented the trial is not the most balanced perspective on its on its overall utility, and uh, I would also say that a home run would be showing that we have cured these patients. And uh, that is not what we've shown. I I would say that it is clearly a positive trial for disease-free survival. And the results are impressive for what it asked. 
the challenge that I see is that this is not the endpoint that the lung cancer community has historically considered our gold standard or what we would really hope to see for adjuvant therapy curative setting. Uh, we have never spent any time considering disease-free survival years ago when chemotherapy became the standard of care. That was uh, based on only overall survival. And uh, similarly with ECOG 1505 that looked at the addition of bevacizumab to chemotherapy, there was some consideration when the trial was being developed of disease-free survival, and that was roundly uh, discouraged uh, from from many directions as being inappropriate. So when we are not having a trial developed by and, and run by uh, a pharmaceutical company, we have a different standard, and that may have been watered down over time. Uh, and yes, it is a somewhat different question, but I would say what we've established is that while patients are still on osimertinib, which is a uh, clearly very effective agent, you can at least suppress the appearance of disease for a period of time. Uh, we have not shown that these patients are cured, and that is really what I think we would need to see, an overall survival difference. And again, I would highlight that the, the control arm did pretty poorly on this study, and uh, that maybe in part because the delivery of adjuvant chemotherapy was relatively disappointing. 45% of the patients in the study didn't get adjuvant chemotherapy. And while we can debate whether that would really be uh, what we would expect or hope to see for the stage 1B population, it was only 70% in the stage 2 and 3 patients. And that's really an overall survival benefit for chemotherapy, which is more than we can say for osimertinib, uh, that that was uh, not delivered. And it, it kind of raises questions about the overall quality of, of care for the patients on the study. And again, without knowing how many patients had, uh, had undergone a PET-CT, particularly for patients with stage two or three non-small cell, if you didn't undergo a PET-CT, I would not consider that very rigorous staging. And so this may be in large part a study of disease-free survival of EGFR inhibitor versus not for patients with advanced disease, at least a subset. And so I, I'm, I would not consider to this to be as remarkably effective as we would hope to see for an adjuvant therapy uh, at least without knowing more details about it. And I would consider it a solid base hit or a double, but not the home run that it was characterized as. Well, thanks, Jack. It's always good to have a differing viewpoint uh, as compared to the speaker and uh, other investigators. But you have been very active on social media and you are uh, an avid uh, tweeter. So <laughs> on the tweet, you said that... Uh, there is a point about the cost of therapy. The cost is still high, and it has been given for three years in the study. Can you uh, make some comments on the cost of therapy and uh, overall outcome of the patients? Sure. I, I would say, and uh, Nate and I have debated, uh, that 
I, I think it would be less of an issue if this were not a drug that cost over $200,000 and uh, really in, in general costing about a quarter million dollars per year. That is not to say that it wouldn't be worth it uh, if we prove a survival benefit. But without that, I think it is more of a question. It doesn't mean that I wouldn't talk about it or recommend it to my own patients, at least those with higher risk disease. I would, but I would feel better about it if it weren't uh, some Sophie's choice between probably helping my own patient and incurring incredibly high costs for this that are borne by potentially the patient, at least, you know, having a copay of one or $2,000 per month will be very painful, if not prohibitive for many patients. And of course, the, the broader costs are borne by other folks in society who are not voting on that. They just see their Healthcare premiums go up 30% next year and are crying at the kitchen table because uh, they, you know, they can't manage when one of the one of the people with the job has lost it because of coronavirus and this comes up. So I think that we just struggle. And I know Nate also has uh, some misgivings about the cost of it. And it's not to say that I don't think it's appropriate the person, person in front of you. I just think that it is a part of what should be our discussion and there should be some questions and pressure you know, f- with the cost of this drug when you're talking about three quarters of a million dollars over three years to treat a patient. And some of these patients are already cured and can't get more cured and they're going to be on it for all this time. And the reality is that there's a very real probability that it will be extrapolated to patients with earlier stage disease and patient patients treated for more than three years. Because if you have treated someone for three years, you can't have any real confidence that you've eradicated the disease if you couldn't say that after two and a half years. So I think that if patients can continue it for three plus four, five, six, ten years, that will be uh, the temptation, and uh, that we may well want to extrapolate this to other driver mutations and targeted therapies. Uh, if someone is found to have an alkyl arrangement or ret fusion, and we have targeted therapies for them, even without the data, we may really consider Adora to be the the case that that proves the principle broadly. So, Nate, uh, you have a positive endpoint or a more upbeat opinion of the trial results. How enthusiastic will clinicians be to incorporate osimertinib into their practice in the adjuvant setting? Yeah, I think um, I think there will be enthusiasm for this, and I am enthusiastic about the results. And you know, I, I um, certainly take Jack's points. Very well. You know, I think it is absolutely right to have a conversation about design of trials and what the relationship is between disease-free survival and overall survival. And, you know, certainly if the disease-free survival had come out at 0.7, then it would be very reasonable to wonder about the, whether this was something meaningful enough or whether we should wait for overall survival. But, you know, uh, with, with deference to Dr. Herbst and his baseball analogy of the home run, I really like Jill's football analogy. So, you know, 
uh, touchdown would be cures, improved cures and improved overall survival. This is a long bomb over the middle that sets up first and goal a foot from the goal line. It's not yet the touchdown that we need to see, and we do need to see that, but the odds are very good. I mean, the hazard ratio of 0.17, I have trouble imagining that that will not translate to a difference in overall survival. And while it is very appropriate to worry about the cost of drugs overall, because they are outrageously expensive, I think, you know, worries about whether treatment will continue for indefinite periods of time or whether this will be extended to other people. I mean, that's a conversation we can have. We can, we can, there are ways to prevent that from happening. And I think uh, if today a patient was started on osimertinib, by the time their three years is up, we should have more evidence about whether three years is sufficient time to stop. And, you know, payers can put barriers in place to prevent further treatment and doctors can say, you know, I think the evidence suggests this is long enough. I'm not too concerned that that's just going to be a a huge issue. I do think a big issue, though, is going to be um, if this is going to be embraced, um, this is going to require a change in treatment patterns because now we're going to have to start testing early stage patients for EGFR mutations. And so it's going to require a fair amount of education and implementation work to, to get this going if it is approved. I agree. I think that the Results are early. It was a interim analysis, and uh, the study was stopped. And uh, the longer follow-up is needed. We do need the overall survival. But if I were to take it uh, and give you my viewpoint, I think 0.17 hazard ratio is phenomenal. There's no question. We have never seen it in any of the lung cancer trials that uh, I've been a part of in the last uh, three decades. So, Jill, do you want to add something here? Uh, related to the cost of therapy and also related to the baseball versus the football analogy that you gave? Yes, yes, definitely. And I, I, I agree 100% with Nate. I, it's not a home run at all. And it's, it's, it is a step. And I do think it's a step. I guess as a patient who has had experience with a, taking a TKI as an adjuvant therapy after I was first diagnosed, I was diagnosed stage 1A. So technically, if you are only going to, you know, give the adjuvant therapy to someone in a later stage because those are the results you have, I don't feel, I don't ever feel like that's the whole picture. I'd, I'd like to see correlative studies. I'd like to see a better way to stratify patients for adjuvant therapy. And that would take us a step closer to the goal. So um, as far as the analogy, yes, I, I really believe it's a football analogy. But I want, I want the touchdown. We all want the touchdown. So, but as far as cost, I, I do, I have, I have a problem with access and affordability. And especially, not just here in the United States, globally, like osimertinib is not the number one drug that's used globally. It's not improved in some countries. And so, and it's really disheartening and upsetting and scary to patients within our EGFR community. And I think that that, that accessibility is number one, but affordability as well. It just 
what it's not okay to, and it's not enough to just develop these new treatments if they will only benefit patients who have access to and can afford the cutting edge care. So we have these life-saving, life-changing treatments, but what good are they if the people who are sick can't get the care they need? So it is, I think, that that is a major problem. And I personally know people who have decided not to do treatment because they do not want to leave that financial burden on their family. And that is just wrong. It's, it's wrong. So that is a major problem, definitely, that I have with as far as um, affordability and cost. And I would just, sorry, I was just going to say that uh, I totally agree with Jill's point. And I think that we are seeing provocative, still early data on minimal residual disease or tracking through circulating tumor DNA or circulating tumor cells, the response to therapy or identifying which patients are at greater risk of progression after chemo radiation or all sorts of settings, not just lung cancer, but actually what's also impressive about this work is that it is so consistent across different tumor types and clinical settings that I'm very hopeful that in the next several years, not decades, but just in the next few years, we can move forward with the means of identifying, as Jill suggested, which patients are at highest risk and not necessarily over-treating the patients who uh, test negative, uh, who would qualify for Adora and, and kind of using that to refine that, but also extending beyond it. If there are stage 1A patients or uh, certainly helping to inform in the 1B setting where patients have a much better prognosis and there is a real risk of over as well as under-treating, to help inform by doing this testing. So I look forward to a time which I hope is in the not very distant future when we can be much more informed in these conversations. And then I don't think we'll have nearly the dilemma we do now. Yeah, I'll second that. I mean, that's a, that's a great point. And, um, you know, I think all of us would, would much rather be treating the people that truly need it rather than everyone. I think we are living in the era of precision medicine and hopefully all parties will agree to test uh, lung cancer patients in their early stages after surgical resection. And hopefully, I think that will uh, take our treatment to the next level. I agree with all, of, all three of you, but I still think that survival trumps everything. And I think we need to wait for the survival results. And I agree with Jack that the control arm did, did really perform poorly as compared to what we would have expected. So moving on, uh, I guess uh, maybe I should ask you, Jack and Nate, that if you were to see a patient tomorrow, would you sit down and talk to them or you would just give it to them? Well, I, I think it needs to be a conversation. And even though I have some issues with the trial, it doesn't mean I'm not impressed by the results. I, I think they're, even if they're not that surprising, I do think that uh, DFS was a, a lower, much lower bar to, to clear but uh, I would absolutely talk about it with my patients. I would go so far as to probably recommend it for my higher risk patients, for my lower risk, the 1B population. 
I would talk about it. I just wouldn't be as strong or full-throated in my recommendation for it. I think it's it's uh, uh, much uh, more much more dependent on what I think a, a patient may have a perspective on. I suspect that most patients learning these data, if they're higher risk, will be eager to do it if it is practically, and by that I largely mean financially feasible. We didn't really talk about toxicity issues, but I would say osimertinib is very conducive to longitudinal administration in a way that some of the other prior, you know, such as erlotinib or especially afatinib, EGFR TKIs are just not as uh, feasible for longitudinal. And here I think that the main toxicity is is financial if if it's there for the patient. Yes, I completely agree with Jack. You know, you you don't just walk in and say this is what we're doing. We have to have a conversation about it. But certainly for my stage two and three patients, and and you know, and again, we have to remember this trial, even though it included stage one B, this was the old staging system, and so the higher risk one Bs will now be included in stage two. I I would recommend it unless there was a real reason not to, but I would certainly discuss the data and, and take into consideration what the patient's wishes were. But I do think this is a, you know, it's a, it's a relatively straightforward concept. You can say that you can cut the risk of the cancer coming back in the first two years by, you know, 83%, and that's pretty good. Um, now for, uh, and will it cure you? I don't know. I don't know. But uh, we will find out that information. And in the meantime, I don't think that it's reasonable to make people wait what may still be several years to, to learn whether there's an overall survival benefit before uh, talking about treating. I, I think the hard part there is, and I understand, again, I, I took TKI as adjuvant therapy because of my family history. And even though I was stage 1A originally, but I think the hardest part there is for patients is adjuvant therapy is for curative intent. So when a patient goes on adjuvant therapy, I think your mindset in the beginning is that you are going to go on it, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel where you will go off of it. And that's one thing that we don't know what's going to happen when the patient goes off of it. And that's an important conversation to have. Again, personally speaking, when I was on it, that's the only time in 11 years I haven't had cancer. The minute I went off it, almost the cancer came back, which, okay. I mean, it's okay. I, we knew, you know, that that's how we knew I still had cancer and I ended up becoming a stage four, a patient. But I think for patients, it's important, especially for patients who have side effects. And yes, you guys are absolutely right. The majority of the patients, it's tolerable. But once again, you know, personal experience, I'm a patient that mouth sores galore. I lost 13 pounds the first month and a half that I went on, after I went on osimertinib, we dropped, you know, I dropped the dose in half and still have side effects. So, well, now there's not a light at the end of the tunnel. I don't get, go off of it until it stops working. So 
the side, I don't think the side effects are reported the way they're supposed to be. Patients don't want to get kicked off trials. Patients are afraid their doctor is going to either take them off the treatment or reduce their dose. Or, you know, again, patients can be just determined and stubborn. So what we hear in our community from patients is not what you guys necessarily hear or the data shows. So people really do struggle with it. And so I think that, you know, that is something to take into consideration when talking to the patients and when a patient's making a decision about, again, something they may only be on for three years is three years the magic number? Are they going to want to stay on it? Because you have to understand too that patients, they have a hard time when they're not quote unquote doing something. Will we be able to say whether it is one year, two years or three years based on the long-term follow-up of the trial that those patients who say took it for three years maybe survived the longest? So I think we need to wait for the overall survival and the results of the mm-hmm. compliance of the treatment and all the duration of the treatment that the patients took. Yeah. And I just have to say that, you know, with all the advancements in lung cancer research over the years, there hasn't been any in the early stage particularly in lowering the high risk of recurrence. So you look at all these other cancers that have a 90 some odd percent cure rate if they're caught in the early stage and they go through the protocol of treatment. So when a lung cancer patient is diagnosed with lung cancer and it's early stage and you're told what percent have recurrence, it's really, you feel helpless and it's disheartening. So you know, when you say, what can I do? I mean, you can only hope and pray so much, right? So this is, regardless of how long you would take it, and I, you know, trust me, I really, there are a lot of important questions that I have as a research advocate that are unanswered. But at the end of the day, a patient is diagnosed and they hear those, the, the recurrence rate and there's no, there's nothing you can do about it. It's a horrible feeling. I mean, you feel like a sitting duck. So what do you want? You want hope. You want hope that, well, if I do this, then maybe it'll work long enough until there's something else. And again, it's that football analogy. What's going to get me to the next first down. And so that's where I think the majority of patients, this is hope to them. And not every patient, obviously. Uh, And, you know, there's a lot of patients who are stage two patients now or that don't decide not to do chemotherapy. So it is really, really a personal decision. All right, Nathan, uh, Jack, do you want to add... uh... Your last comments? So I think that, you know, all of us are having a really healthy conversation about this. I think this probably is the most exciting trial we've seen in the last couple of years, just based upon how much discussion there is. 
uh, about it. And I also uh, think it's important to point out that so far all of this discussion is based upon uh, 10 minutes of oral presentation and uh, a handful of slides, and we haven't seen the publication yet, so there's a lot of um, things, as Jack brought up, about staging and breakdowns of chemotherapy in different stages and things that we haven't really seen yet. But I think the overarching message here is that this is an overwhelmingly encouraging result in a population of patients who really have not had an effective treatment. And, and as of right now, most of them go on to recur and eventually die of their recurrent cancer. And I think this is the best option we've seen, certainly in my career, in terms of the, the hope and potential that we may be significantly impact their, their cure rates and overall survival. And so I absolutely can't wait to see the overall survival results. But in the meantime, I think that this is uh, promising enough that this will hopefully change practice, and it's certainly changing my practice. Jack, do you agree? Uh, I, I agree more than I don't. I, I think it, it, we need to work with the information we have at the time. And at this time, knowing the disease-free survival benefit and not knowing overall survival, I would be inclined to give the patient the benefit of the doubt by wanting to uh, offer this at least to the patients with higher risk disease. But I think that Jill's uh, overall story is quite significant that she was on adjuvant EGFR TKI therapy, didn't have evidence of disease. And as soon as she stopped it, she had evidence of the disease. And yet she is still alive, thankfully, now, and I hope doing well. And because of, of, cases like hers. I think it is very appropriate to be asking if patients can uh, end up doing this just as well and be alive years later if they get treated upon relapse and if our treatment is just suppressing disease for a period of time and and we would expect that these the uh, EGFR inhibitors are not necessarily going to last forever in their efficacy that acquired resistance may occur and it may be leading to small cell transformation or something that is harder to treat when it happens. I think we need to keep uh, attentive to the big picture and the big prize, which is overall survival rather than uh, be too complacent. Uh, I think the real issue is not whether we're encouraged by Adora, anybody would be, but I think it's a mistake to call it a home run, which would suggest that mission accomplished. This is not the end of the story. We have much more to learn. And I'm also concerned about, as a lung cancer community, rescinding our role as enforcing rigorous endpoints and standards and trying to defend those because I think that there are clear marketing interests and this is something that is good business, and it was a, a, a good business decision more than a scientific one to have disease-free survival as the endpoint. It's a little bit of both, but uh, you know, the reality is that we have different standards when we are choosing the endpoints ourselves than when a pharma company is choosing them. And I don't think we should let go of the control we should hope to have in the process. I agree. I think that we should uh, wait for the overall survival results. But in fact, uh, I would still say that the results are impressive, more positive than uh, we have ever seen. 
So with that, uh, let me thank you all, Jill, Nate, and uh, Jack, for joining me on this podcast. As we conclude this discussion, I think we can all agree that we have a large number of approvals uh, and options for patients with lung cancer. And I think it is a good problem to have, having to debate the nuances of so many therapies. Thank you for evaluating those nuances here. And thank you for your work that you do to improve the field. Hopefully, we'll take uh, the field of uh, lung cancer to the next level and overall improve the outcome of our patients with lung cancer. Thank you again for joining me today. Thank you. My pleasure. Great. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Visit the news section on IASLC.org for more Lung Cancer Considered podcasts. And please like your favorite episodes on SoundCloud and share them with your friends and colleagues. 